Well, we're still in the Olivet Discourse. Let's go to Mark chapter 13 tonight, Mark chapter 13. And in particular, we're going to be, uh, well, I didn't put that in there, did I? I didn't put the actual, the actual address. Okay. Mark chapter 13. We'll be in verse 24 tonight. Mark 13, beginning in verse number 24. But in those days after the tribulation, I'm sorry, but in those days after that tribulation, the sun shall be darkened and the moon shall not give her light. And the stars of heaven shall fall, and the powers that are in heaven shall be shaken. And then shall they see the Son of Man coming in the clouds with great power and glory. And then shall he send his angels and shall gather together his elect from the four winds, from the uttermost part of the earth to the uttermost part of heaven. Now learn a parable of the fig tree, when her branch is yet tender and putteth forth leaves. You know that summer is near, so ye in like manner, when ye shall see these things come to pass... Know that it is nigh, even at the doors. Verily I say unto you, that this generation shall not pass till all these things be done. Heaven and earth shall pass away, but my words shall not pass away. Father, would you help me as I teach this passage? Uh, For some reason, Lord, these messages have come harder to me than others. Um. And, and there's a part of me that's grateful for that, because when there's a struggle, I think it's indicative that the devil doesn't want us to grasp these truths and be helped. And uh, sometimes he'll fight against it. So, Lord, help me to rightly divide your word of truth and to do so in a clear way, but also in, a, in an enjoyable way. I, I don't want this to be so dry and academic that, that the, the wonderful truths are lost in my delivery. So, Lord, would you just help us to uh, get exactly what we need tonight and encourage us tonight. May Jesus be lifted up. For it's in his name we pray. Amen. We began, um, of course, this is the last message that Jesus preached before Calvary. And it's interesting, the, the, beginning of his, in, his, the beginning and ending of his earthly ministry is bookended by preaching, by sermons. You've got the Sermon on the Mount, and then you've got the Olivet Discourse. And... Um, we started with the background and the introduction. That's kind of like when we look at the Lego project and say, hey, I like that. That looks good. We look at the box or we look at it online. I think that that'd be fun to do. And then the principles for proper interpretation. We get out the instructions. We lay out all the different bags and we separate them, get them all set up. And then we get into the actual message, the actual discourse, and that's when we start putting it together. And our, our hope and prayer is that when we've done so, we look back on this and say, man, that was a great, great project. Okay? And we're using the three questions that, that are given in Matthew's account, Matthew 24, 3, as our three main points for this discourse. We began with, when shall these things be? Then, what is the sign of thy coming? And then, what is the sign of the end of the world. And so in the first message, we, we talked about that, verses 5 through 13, and then verses 14 through 26. And now we're going to backtrack a little bit to verse 24. And now we're going to look at what shall be the sign of the end of the world. And I have verse 37 up there. It should be verse 31. Verses 24 through 31. I don't know what I was thinking there. Just disregard that. If you're taking notes, it's 13... Chapter 13, verses 24 
through 31. 24 through 31, okay? All right. So I think what I'm going to do, rather than some kind of a cute outline, I think I'm just going to... Um, by the way, if you see me doing this a lot, I'm sorry. I hope it's not too distracting. This CPAP thing, with the, 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 it's just killing me. It's driving my nose crazy, and I'm just constantly doing this, and I don't you know, have any kind of problems or anything. Um, I know what some of you might be thinking. Uh, no, it's not that at all. Um, it's, 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 it's the CPAP. It, it is. You try having air just shoved up your face every night. But anyway... Um, man, okay. But I think what I'm going to do is I'm just going to take this in pieces and work through this passage and just kind of make some comments that I hope will be helpful. So let's begin verses 24 and 25. These are the events that are leading to the glorious appearing. We're in the last days of the tribulation, the last days of the tribulation leading up to the glorious appearing of Jesus Christ. Christ, that's verses 24 and 25. But in those days after that tribulation, the sun shall be darkened and the moon shall not give her light and the stars of heaven shall fall and the powers that are in heaven shall be shaken. It's interesting, this is not the first time you see the Bible mention these events. If you go all the way back to the book of Isaiah, 750 or so so years before Jesus says this, listen to this, Isaiah 13, verse number 9, Behold, the day of the Lord cometh, cruel both with wrath and fierce anger, to lay the land desolate, And he shall destroy the sinners thereof out of it, for the stars of heaven and the constellations thereof shall not give their light, and the sun shall be darkened in his going forth, and the moon shall not cause her light to shine. And I will punish the world for their evil, and the wicked for their iniquity, and I will cause the arrogancy of the proud to cease, and will lay low the haughtiness of the terrible. Can I just put a pin in verse 11 for just a second here? This crowd up in Minnesota, this governor that just signed into law allowing abortion all the way up to the moment of birth. Can I just read a verse to them? And I will punish the world for their evil and the wicked for their iniquity. And I will cause the arrogancy of the proud to cease and will lay low the haughtiness of the terrible. Can I just tell you, it jumps all over me to see a bunch of people clapping while somebody signs legislation that codifies as legal and even preferable to kill a baby at birth. That is wicked, it is satanic, I have no room for it, and God certainly doesn't either. Now, he's talking about these are the signs to the tribulation believers. If you're somebody that got saved during the tribulation, how long is this going to go on? How much must we endure? They tells us that Jesus is coming back. How do we know? When do we know it's coming? These verses tell us what to look for for tribulation saints expecting Jesus and his return. Now, for all of us that are saved today, this doesn't apply to us at all. We won't be there for the tribulation. We talked about that last week. We won't be here for that. But these are people that have gotten saved in the tribulation. Well, who are those people? Well, these are whoever were won to Christ via the 144,000 Jewish evangelists of Revelation 7 and 14, those that come to Christ because of the two witnesses of Revelation 11, and those that come to Christ because of the proclaiming angel of Revelation 14. There will be people that are saved during the tribulation, and thank God for that. Um, It's a select group of people. There are criteria there for who can and can't be saved in the tribulation. 
Um, but there will be people saved, and we thank the Lord for that. But when are they to expect Christ to appear and in this time of sorrows? Now, let me say this. These verses that talk about, um, you, know, the, the, you know, the sun shall be dark and the moon shall not give her light, stars of heaven shall fall. None of this is in reference to the rapture. The rapture is not in view here. Okay? This is when Jesus returns, his glorious appearing. Okay? Now, verse 26 speaks to the glorious appearing of Jesus Christ. You understand that his second coming is divided into two parts. It begins with the rapture in which we meet him in the clouds in the air and go to heaven with him. And for the next seven years, we're there while the tribulation takes place here on earth. And then Jesus returns and sets foot on the planet, establishes his millennial reign. That is his second coming proper, his glorious appearing. Okay, Verse 26, let's look at it. And then shall they see the Son of Man coming in the clouds with great power and glory. We can read about that in Revelation 19. I think for time's sake, I, well, let's do it. Revelation 19. Hold your place here. Go to Revelation 19, verse 11. We read it last week. I want to read it again because it's one of my favorite passages. Revelation 19 and verse number 11. And I saw heaven opened. Behold, a white horse, and he that sat upon him was called Faithful and True. And in righteousness he doth judge and make war. His eyes were as a flame of fire, and on his head were many crowns. He had a name written that no man knew but he himself. And he was clothed with a vesture dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. Now let's stop there for now at verse 13. Hold your place here. We'll come back to it. Okay, in fact, I'm going to find something. Prayer list will do. I'm going to hold my place here. Okay, we'll come back to that. All right? Now, in fact, go back to it now. I forgot where I put this point. It's right here. Now, who's coming with him? We are. We're coming with him. All right, so back in Revelation 19, look at uh, verse, number, um, verse number 14. And the armies which were in heaven followed him upon white horses clothed in fine linen, white and clean. Well, couldn't that mean the angel? Nope. I'm talking about the angels. I'm talking about us. And I can prove it. I can prove it. Uh, listen to this, Zechariah 14, verse 5. And ye shall flee to the valley of the mountains, for the valley of the mountains shall reach unto Azal. Yea, ye shall flee like as ye fled from before the earthquake in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah. And the Lord my God shall come, and all the saints with thee. First Thessalonians 3, verse 12. And the Lord make you to increase and abound in love one toward another and toward all men, even as we do toward you. To the end, he may establish your hearts unblameable in holiness before God, even our Father, at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ with all his saints. Jude 14. And Enoch also, the seventh from Adam, prophesied of these, saying, Behold, the Lord cometh with ten thousands of his saints to execute judgment upon all and to convince all that are ungodly among them of all their ungodly deeds which they have ungodly committed and of all their hard speeches which ungodly sinners have spoken against him. So I think it's pretty clear from these supporting passages that these people that are coming down, this army that comes down with him is none other but than the saints of God, us. 
And that's exciting. And it says that we're clothed in fine linen, white and clean. Well, where did we get those? Where did we get that? Revelation 19, verse 7. Let us be glad and rejoice and give honor to him, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his wife hath made herself ready. Who's the wife of the, the Lamb? The church. That's us. Verse 8, And to her was granted that she should be arrayed in fine linen, clean and white. For the fine linen is the righteousness of saints. That linen is symbolic of my standing before God. Because of Jesus, I'm clean. Now that's true now positionally. But when this happens, it'll also be true practically. I'll never again sin. I'll never again fail him. I'll never again come up short. I'll never again be a bad husband, a bad father, a bad pastor, a bad person. All that will be gone. Man, that's going to be wonderful. That's going to be wonderful. Okay, so the glorious appearing of Jesus Christ. Now, we get into something that we don't talk about a whole lot in verse number 27. Verse number 27 appears to talk about what I'm going to call the separation of tribulation saints and sinners. Okay, verse 27. All right. Let's read it. And then shall he send his angels and shall gather together his elect from the four winds, from the uttermost part of the earth to the uttermost part of heaven. Who is the elect? I believe the elect refers to Israel specifically, but really all the tribulation saints. Now, the question is asked, at this point, is it enough to be Jewish to be saved? I submit to you, no. No. But I think there's an answer for this. I think any Jews that have survived the tribulation are going to see him for who he is. And because of that, they will be saved. Can I prove it to you? Can I show you why I believe they will have recognized Jesus as their Messiah? Zechariah 12.10 and I will pour out, I will pour upon the house of David and upon the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of what? Grace and of supplication. So Jesus is coming. Isn't it amazing? Even though he is about to lay the biggest supernatural smackdown on a group of people you've ever seen in your life, the Bible says he is coming in grace. What are we saved by? For by grace are you saved through faith. Grace. He's coming in grace. What happens next? And they shall look upon me whom they have pierced. And they shall mourn for him as one mourneth for his only son. And shall be in bitterness for him as one that is in bitterness for his firstborn. Who's they? Jews. And they're looking upon who? Him whom they pierced. Who did they pierce? Jesus. Jesus. Revelation 1.7, Behold, he cometh with clouds, and every eye shall see him, and they also which pierced him, and all the kindred of the earth shall wail because of him. Even so, amen. By the way, Revelation 12.10, I'm sorry, Zechariah 12.10 and Revelation 1.7 is an excellent couple of passages to use with a Jehovah's Witness. Now, I don't in general recommend that we take on people that are 
you know, involved in cults and are well, well schooled in what they believe. That can be problematic. So you got to be super careful. But I have a copy of their, I went back and looked at it today. I have a copy of, of their quote unquote Bible, the New World Translation, which is their preferred translation. They did it themselves. And uh, anyway, I went back and looked at this. And it is close enough in their translation to still portray the same truth that we have in our Bible. And if you take them in their own, their own translation to, Revel- to Zechariah 12.10, and you read that to them, you'll ask them, to whom does this refer? Zechariah 12.10, who's it talking about, Will? Contextually, it's talking about God. You're right, it's talking about God. Yeah. Then you take them to, to Revelation 1.7, and you say, all right, contextually, who's it talking about? Well, Jesus. That's right, it's talking about Jesus. You don't believe that Jesus is the Son of God, let alone God, but you've got two verses in your own translation, the same event, the same person, one's God, one's Jesus. Now you tell me what your own mistranslation is telling you. Jesus is God, and you better get that squared away. These precious folks have bought into a lie. They don't believe Jesus is the Son of God. Isn't it interesting? They, they put together their own homemade translation and still can't eradicate the gospel within it. Isn't that interesting? Anyway. So, if these Jews are going to see him as their Messiah, and he's going to separate the tribulation saints from the sinners, well, then who then is going to rebel at the conclusion of the millennial reign, well, I'd offer you this thought. A thousand years is a long time to make more people. It's a long time to make more people. Particularly when you consider that these people will live six, seven, eight, nine hundred years. They'll be restored to the original lifespan that we saw after Adam. And that's a lot of time to make a lot of people. And there's going to be generations that are going to come in in that, that they're, they're, not going to, they're not going to follow their sovereign ruler, Jesus Christ. But, but he's going to rule perfectly. Yep. He's going to rule with a rod of iron. Yep. He's not going to make any mistakes. Yep. And that doesn't mean anything to an unregenerate mind. An unregenerate mind will rebel against the most perfect of leaders. And they do at the end, unfortunately. They do. Now, let's, let's get into what happens. It appears at this time when Jesus, in his glorious appearing, following his arrival at some point, he will judge all the nations and determine their faith. And it's interesting what he uses as evidence of their true faith. Hold your place in Mark. Go over to Matthew's account, Matthew 25. Matthew 25. Verse 31, I believe this is speaking of the same general event. Matthew orders things a little bit differently, but verse 31, when the Son of Man shall come in his glory, and all the holy angels with him, then shall he sit upon the throne of his glory. Okay? The throne of his glory. By the way, I think we know exactly where this this particular throne is going to be. Joel chapter 3, verse 1, For behold, in those days, and in that time, when I shall bring again the captivity of Judah and Jerusalem, I will also gather all nations and bring them down into the valley 
of Jehoshaphat and will plead with them there for my people and for my heritage Israel, whom they have scattered among the nations and parted my land. So somewhere in that region, Jesus is going to set up a throne of judgment. Now, this isn't the white throne judgment, nor is it the judgment seat of Christ. But it is a time of sifting. All right, back to Matthew 25. Um, Verse 32, And before him shall be gathered all nations, and he shall separate them one from another, as a shepherd divideth his sheep from the goats. Something comes to my mind whenever I read that verse now. A couple of years ago, I watched a documentary on Mr. Rogers. You remember Mr. Rogers? It's a beautiful day in the neighborhood. Mr. Rogers was originally an ordained Presbyterian minister. Um, There's interesting things about Mr. Rogers. I don't take the position of some. Some people people think that he was all kind. I I think Mr. Rogers probably was well-intended. I I think that he tried to to do right by kids and and to have a, a good and Um, and wholesome show for them. Um, Certainly, it it appears that he lived a moral life. And I hope, frankly, I hope that I see him in heaven one day. I I don't know his specific testimony. But after he passed, his wife, who's now also passed, his wife said this in this documentary. She said he had stomach cancer. And as it got closer and closer to the end, he was laying in bed and... He was reading his Bible, and he read this passage. And he looked at her, and he said, uh, her, her name escapes me all of a sudden, but he said, honey, do you think I'm a sheep or a goat? Now, that's sad enough, but her answer is even sadder. Oh, Fred, as good a man as you are, if anybody's a sheep, it's you. That's not the right answer. That's not the right answer. Now, does that mean he wasn't saved? No, I've known great Christians that as they got close to the end, they feared, what if I'm not? That doesn't say anything. Remember, doubts don't determine whether or not you're saved. If you're saved, you're saved, no matter what your mind is telling you. Okay. But I was, it always saddens me when I read this verse, I think of that. But anyway... Verse 33, and he shall set the sheep on his right hand, but the goats on the left. Then shall the king say unto them on his right hand, Come, you blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Now listen to how he determines their faithfulness. Now this isn't a work salvation, but it's evidence of a true conversion. Look at what he says. For I was unhungered, and you gave me meat. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you took me in. Naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came unto me. Then shall the righteous answer him. Now, what's righteous? That's saved, right? Then shall the righteous answer him, saying, Lord, when saw we thee and hungered, and fed thee, or thirsty, and gave thee drink? When saw we thee a stranger, and took thee in, or naked, and clothed thee? Or when saw we thee sick, or in prison, and came unto thee? And the king shall answer and say unto them, Verily I say unto you, As much and as much as ye have done it unto one of the least of these, my brethren, ye have done it unto me. Based upon the context and the timing that this falls into, I believe Jesus is talking about the Jews. I believe he's talking to these, these people 
How did you treat my chosen people? Because that's indicative of whether or not you truly were saved. Once again, you're not saved because you did it. But if, you want, if you're in the tribulation and you want to spot somebody who claims they're a Christian, claims they believed on Messiah, and they mistreat his people, they're not really saved. And will there be opportunity to mistreat the Jews during the tribulation? You better believe it. I don't mean to be, I don't mean to be glib about this, but the way the Antichrist comes after God's chosen people is going to make the Holocaust look like nothing. Terrible. Horrible. In fact, if I, my memory serves me right, brother, what is it? Two-thirds of the Jews won't make it through. Something in that, in that. Yeah. Thank you. I knew I could count on you. Um, <laughs> Two-thirds. By the way, you know how hard it is to go through this stuff when he's got that kind of memory on individual passages. I can't wait to get through this. Anyway. <laughs> At least I remember the two-thirds. I get points for that, don't I? <laughs> so then he goes on and then he said also to them on the left hand depart from me you cursed into everlasting fire prepared for the devil and his angels for I was in hunger and you gave me no meat and I was thirsty and you gave me no drink I was a stranger and you took me not in naked and you clothed me not sick and in prison and you visited me not then shall they also answer him saying Lord when saw we thee and hungered or a thirst or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison or did not minister unto thee by the way notice this the unsaved are calling him Lord too they have no choice then shall he answer them, saying, Verily I say unto you, Insomuch as ye did it not unto one of the least of these, ye did it not to me. And these shall go away into everlasting punishment, but the righteous into life eternal. My understanding of this passage, and I fully admit that different people see this different ways, I think at the beginning of the millennium there is a great separation. Sheep, goats. Let's move on for time's sake. Verse 28. Verses 28 and 29 is a parable about the fig tree. Therefore, take therefore the talent from him and give it unto him which hath ten ta- No, that's not right. That's Matthew. Back to Mark, shall we go? Okay. Mark 13. That's a good verse, but not what we want to cover. Mark 13, verse 28. Now learn a parable of the fig tree. When her branch is yet tender and putteth forth leaves... Ye know that summer is near, so ye in like manner, when ye shall see these things come to pass, know that it is nigh even at the doors. Okay. In the past, in the not so distant past, we've seen Jesus interact with a fig tree, and we made this point that the fig tree in most cases is a picture of what group? Israel, right? The Jews. I don't believe that's the case here. And i got a couple of reasons for that. First of all, the, the way the passage is written and the way it's organized doesn't lend itself to that interpretation. But I've got a, a, another what I think is a more compelling reason that I don't believe it's referring to Israel specifically. When you look at Luke's account in Luke 21 verse 29, he says this, he spake to them a parable, Behold the fig tree and all the trees. He doesn't just limit it to the fig tree. So I take that to mean that he's talking about a principle based on how these trees work, not necessarily. Could it just be that where he's talking to these people, there's a fig tree? Probably. Okay? Probably. 
All right? So what's he saying? He's talking about the suddenness of his return. When, when you see the fig tree in, in the state that he describes, when her branch is yet tender and putteth forth leaves, when you see the fig tree in that state, summer's on you. Summer, summer's about to begin at any moment, and you can count on it. It's predictable. Okay? Well, with that, he's saying when you see these signs that I've described to you, you can bet I'm on you. I'm coming immediately. You start looking for me because it's right there, and I will come suddenly. I will come suddenly. In fact, Matthew describes it as lightning. And here he comes. Okay. So that brings us to verses 30 and 31. Verily I say unto you, that this generation shall not pass till all these things be done. Heaven and earth shall pass away, but my words shall not pass away. So verses 30 and 31 cover this truth. Jesus' word is trustworthy. It was trustworthy when he uttered it to the disciples here, and it's been trustworthy ever since, and it was trustworthy all the way before that. You can trust God's Word. Verse 30. Verily I say unto you that this generation shall not pass till all of these things be done. Now there have been some preachers that have embraced this verse as speaking of the rapture and they've used, they misused the word generation to try and set a rough estimate of when Jesus was returning in the rapture. There's nothing about this that is talking about the rapture. It's not talking about a a generation as we understand it. But let's go through what's been said. Um, Some preachers said, oh, well, you know, he's... He's talking about uh, the generation of, of Jesus' time when he's, when he's speaking. That, well, none of this stuff happened within a generation of when Jesus said it. So that can't be it. That can't be it. Okay. Um, the word generation can indeed mean a period of time, but depending on where you find it in the Bible, it can mean anywhere from 40 to 100 years. So what, what number are you going with? Okay. So then you've got... Then you've got some people that say, well, this, is, this has got to be plugged into Israeli milestones that within a generation of, of Israel uh, having a major day that, that Jesus is going to come back. And they use two prominently. First of all, they use May 14th, 1948, when Israel was reorganized as a nation, recognized as a nation. Within a generation, Jesus is going to come back. Did he? We better hope not. No, he hasn't. So wrong. Oh, well then, I'll bet, I'll bet it's June 7th, 1967 when they took over Jerusalem and took control of the Temple Mount because now with the Temple Mount, they can build the temple and they can be identified as the Jewish people again. That's it. It's going to happen within that generation. Well, if a generation is 40 years or so, that didn't happen either. Here's one for you. Generation doesn't have to mean a period of time. Generation can refer to a people. Have you ever looked at kids at Walmart and go, good night, this generation? 
What do we talk? We, 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 we label generations, don't we? The millennial generation. Generation X and all the other ones. Baby boomers was a generation we talked about, you know. Um, a generation sometimes is used to refer to a people. Many times it referred to the Jews, Mark 8, verse 12. And he sighed deeply in his spirit and said, why doth this generation seek after a sign? He's talking about a people. Mark 19, 19, he answered them and said, O faithless generation, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I suffer you? Bring him unto me. Can I just boil all this down to, to my take? I think what Jesus is saying is, he's talking about the generation that's in existence when the tribulation commences, that we'll see all of this happen. So let's read it again and see if that fits. Verse 30. Verily I say unto you that this generation, the generation that exists when the tribulation commences, will not, shall not pass till all these things be done. To me, that's the most logical. Remember one of our rules of interpretation? The simplest answer is oftentimes the, the right one. I think that's the simplest way to read that. But I don't want to leave you with something uncertain. So let's go to verse 31. Heaven and earth shall pass away, but my words shall not pass away. I I take verse 31 as just a blanket reminder that Christ can be taken at his word. Whether we're talking about eschatology, whether we're talking about soteriology, whether we're talking about you know, ecclesiology, if we're talking about future events, salvation, the church, morality, holiness, you can trust his word, period. Can I give you a couple of verses to back that up? Isaiah 40, verse 8. The grass withereth, the flower fadeth, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Peter then hearkens back to that in 1 Peter 1.24. For all flesh is as grass, and all the glory of man is as the flower of grass. The grass withereth, and the flower thereof falleth away. But the word of the Lord endureth forever. And this is the word which by the gospel is preached unto you. So next week, we're going to see that Jesus pivots a little bit and he goes from a, 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 a parable that's, that's a, that speaks to the tribulation saints in the fig tree to one that is much broader. It's a warning for all of us, verses 32 through 37. Um, this is something that, that really applies to all of us, and all of us can, can take something from. Okay? So we'll get into that next week, Lord willing. Um, and then we go into chapter... 14, where we see really the last hours of Jesus on this earth. We see Judas making a terrible, terrible decision. We see the last, we see the Passover, the, what we call the Last Supper. We see Peter being predicted about his denial. I, I tell you, that, that, part of, of Mark, never fails to move me. Peter denied Christ three times. But when Jesus sends a message after his resurrection, he tells the ladies, go tell the disciples and Peter. 
Peter, you blew it, buddy, but it's all right. You tell Peter everything's all right. By the way, we know who had a heavy hand in the writing of Mark, don't we? Peter. Peter. Mm. So we'll get into that. I don't know that we'll stay in, in these last few verses next week. I think we can probably get into chapter 14 next week, Lord willing. And, uh, and then I would imagine we'll move through these last three chapters pretty quickly. And then that'll be that for the gospel of Mark.